morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Although today you've just got Kirk and I hope that's okay with you. I know that John misses you greatly and uh, sends his best regards and wishes he could be uh, sitting by the fire with you having a cup of cocoa. But uh, he is in the midst of some very heavy-duty trial preparation for a case that starts on Monday. He's out tracking down some last-minute witnesses and such, and uh, I'll be joining him after this show to continue that trial preparation with him. So you have me flying solo today. Hope that's okay with you. Um, So there was a very interesting development this week in one of the insurrection capital rioter cases and as you all know we just had the one-year anniversary of the january 6th uh, events from 2021 and one of the defendants one of the many many defendants that is still facing charges um is uh pending uh, you know, further hearings in the case. He's facing one felony and several misdemeanors. And um, this guy, on behalf, you know, through his lawyer, I should say, um, asked for permission to fly to Jamaica for 10 days. And uh, he cited the fact that he uh, had developed a relationship with uh, a woman and wanted to go to Jamaica to meet her parents. And while there, he stated that he had found a nonprofit uh, company of some sort that he could uh, do some volunteer work at while they're visiting this woman's parents. Um, All seems kind of legit. But anyway, the judge uh, responded the same day that the request was made, which, by the way, was on uh, January 6th. And denied the request and, and issued this written order that commented on the fact that um, it was inappropriate given the stage of litigation and also that the timing of the request was distasteful in some way because it was on the anniversary, if you will, of the January 6th quote-unquote insurrection. Drew some national attention because there have been other things, uh, other types, similar types of requests that have um, drawn some criticism from the federal judges that are presiding over these cases about allowing these people that are charged with, you know, various types of crimes uh, with uh, honoring requests to vary from their bond conditions. And I just want to talk about that because um, on the one hand, at, at first blush, this might look like, hey, you know, this person's facing serious charges. Uh, it's a big deal that they were part of something that was purportedly a, you know, an, an attempt to overthrow the government. Probably um, not very tasteful, I suppose, to ask on the day that uh, marks the one year um, anniversary of those events to, to make that request on that day, as if it were tongue in cheek or something like that. But the reality is that, uh, and this is something I, I confront often in court, when someone's charged with an offense and not convicted of anything, uh, the presumption of innocence applies to, to more than just uh, whether the person is going to be punished in some way. And obviously, you can't punish somebody. 
if they haven't been convicted of something. But the law has long held that you can have restrictions on their conduct or rules that require them to do certain things in order to ensure that the public is safe from you know, someone's um, ongoing criminal behavior or that to ensure that they are uh, going to appear in court. And I've always found this interesting that by virtue of the fact that someone's asking the question, like, can I go to Jamaica, please, um, is an indication that the person is not a flight risk. And, and <laughs> sometimes the prosecutor will point out like Jamaica, that's another country. You know, if somebody wanted to flee, they wouldn't ask first. So that's that's the first point is that by asking you're showing your compliance and respect for the rules in the court but more importantly when someone has charges pending uh, it's not designed to stop their life or freeze a person's life in you know in midstream so that they have to not do things now certainly restrictions as i said that will ensure that the public is safe but you know you can't have somebody um, in a state of a, a lesser form of living your life because of the pendency of charges. And I don't care what the charges are. Nothing's been proven. And in, unless and until there is a conviction, there can't be a consequence that restricts your movement or anything else or your, your planned trip to Jamaica, for that matter, uh, just because a prosecutor said they intend or want to prove a case against you. Think about the ramifications. Um, you know, a, a, any, a person, a human being in some prosecutor's office, whether it's the district attorney's office or the U.S. attorney's office, uh, could just decide on his or her own that they want to allege something. And yes, there's due process that prevents it from being completely arbitrary. But on the other hand, it, it emanates from usually a person's discretion then they say i'm going to allege such and such and if i approve that then the potential penalties that the person's facing are spelled out uh, in a charging document but that doesn't mean that the person did any of those things and it doesn't mean that they are obviously convicted of a crime so it's been this issue that kind of has been uh, bubbling to the surface over the years on how do we deal with um, you know the public following a case where people that that don't understand that concept that one's life should be continued as you know normal as possible with the restrictions that are ordered and again I find it fascinating that if it's not ordered that a person, uh, you know, refrain from a particular activity. People get upset if someone who's facing charges, you know, goes and sees a movie or goes out to dinner with his wife or, you know, or goes on a family vacation. Uh, prosecutors get all upset because they think that someone who's facing charges shouldn't be, uh, you know, having any measure of the enjoyment of life while charges are pending, you know. Um, I've seen that quite a bit, even in state court, for a lot of my clients, where a prosecutor takes an opinion that you know, this isn't an appropriate time for this person to be doing such and such. You know, it offends me when that happens. Now, in this particular case, you know, I think the judge was perceiving that there was some sort of 
as I said, tongue-in-cheek aspect of this, like on the actual anniversary of when this happened, I want to go and uh, enjoy myself in Jamaica. And the judge even said, because this guy's from Michigan, judge even said uh, he wants to leave the cold, wintry uh, (laughs) scene of Michigan and enjoy himself in one of the warmest climes in the Eastern Hemisphere, Western Hemisphere, whatever, whatever is that. And, um, you know, again, that's got nothing to do with it. But there was another case where um, somebody wanted to go on a trip and the and the probation department didn't oppose it and the judge granted it and um you know another one of these insurrection defendants and drew a lot of public criticism like why are we letting these people um do anything they should be locked up you know if they're not locked up and they're sent home and as long as they're following all the rules it shouldn't matter and it doesn't matter what somebody's doing and i think that's important that's a an essential feature of our process innocent until proven guilty and unfortunately there's so many aspects of what we've um injected into that part of the process nowadays i mean it's evolved into this where we just have this expectation that somebody's going to not be allowed to do things do anything you know like the functional equivalent of being in custody um, well, when they're not in custody, they're not in custody. It's, it's that simple. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, ongoing controversy with John Chisholm's office in um, Milwaukee, the district attorney, and who falls on the sword, who gets blamed for a probably inappropriate uh, bail recommendation for the individual who posted bail on a, a crime of violence and then unfortunately ended up uh allegedly killing several people um in the waukesha christmas parade so we'll kind of transition into that when we come back right after these messages welcome back i told you last week that we would keep you updated on the goings-on of the criticism of uh, district attorney john chisholm because a member of his staff, uh, one of the assistant district attorneys, attended a bond hearing uh, for an individual and made a very, very low cash bond recommendation for what would later be the individual accused of killing people in the Waukesha Christmas parade um, after he was released. And, you know, again, hindsight's twenty twenty. And if you're going to look back and say, oh, gee, if only, you know, you could <laughs> you could really do a lot to uh, assume that people are so clairvoyant that um, they would know how to read the future. But, of course, we can't. And you have to remember, in this situation, you'll have a, a system whereby a very quick determination has to be made based on minimal information. And that part of the process is adversarial person's entitled to counsel and anybody who's in custody is going to want to get out of custody right isn't that natural and the judge or court commissioner or whomever has to make a decision based on limited information and it's usually just what's available right then and there in the courtroom and i would dare say it's impossible to know what's going to happen in the following weeks or months after somebody 
is released on cash bond. And by the way, who bears responsibility for that? The person who drove the car into the crowd is responsible, not the DA of Milwaukee County. But I told you I'd give you an update on this, and yes, there is a um, petition out there and a lot of mounting pressure to uh, either request that Chisholm resign or to have him removed by the governor. Uh, I don't know that that's going anywhere, but I kind of mentioned this last week when we we were talking about who bears the ultimate responsibility for these things, and that really is the other side of the coin. Of course, you know, uh, with that position being the elected district attorney, what, what that means is that you're in, responsible for everything that happens, good or bad, in that office because you're uh, managing an entire operation. So, you know, is there blame to be cast on him? Yes, absolutely there is. Um, I don't know. And I don't think that he should be removed from office or that he should resign necessarily because that's an individual decision. And if he decided on his own that um, it would be appropriate for him to resign, I would agree with that. Um, on the other hand, you know, that's it's an individual determination. And, and by the way, um, I think that he might be best equipped to solve the problem, uh, to address the issue as to what happened, because he's the one probably more than anybody else that we could bring in and replace him uh, to know what the weaknesses and strengths of the process are and what can be improved and, and, and so on. You know, he's been the DA for quite some time. So to get rid of you know, the figurehead, so to speak, but but also the person who's probably most familiar with the operations of that particular prosecutorial agency and bring in some other person to, quote unquote, do a better job. Uh, theoretically, that person could be at a disadvantage that Chisholm, you know, we'd be losing an opportunity if he believes that he has the capability and uh, determination to learn from a mistake which is always important, then I would also support his decision to stay if that's what he does. But um, we'll see. Well, I promised you I'd keep you updated on this, and it seems to be gaining some momentum, this effort to get the governor involved. But um, hey, who knows? Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit because there was a big trial that ended, that of uh, Elizabeth Holmes who was the CEO of a company that allegedly, uh, well, supposedly was making uh, this very um, uh, quick way of blood testing that, that relied upon unique technology developed by that business. And it turned out that the, the technology itself wasn't unique or proprietary. It actually used existing technology kind of like piggybacking on it in other ways and it was really just a big marketing scheme and it turns out um all a lie <laughs> and uh you know so, something of the nature of a ponzi scheme is what it ended up looking like so this trial went on for four months and um ultimately she was convicted of several of the counts there there were many that she did not get convicted of but did get convicted of 
some of the major ones for defrauding investors, but really what she was convicted of was something we call wire fraud um, in federal court, and that is really a way to attach federal jurisdiction to a case that isn't otherwise in federal jurisdiction. But this one clearly was because of the implications of um, commerce and FDA approval and all kinds of other things that that brought in federal laws. But still, there has to be a, a federal nexus to it. And that was why, you know, typically wire fraud is a way that people go the government goes about attaching its federal jurisdiction to a case. So let me just explain that a little bit in case you're not familiar with that process. But, you know, when we're talking about someone breaking a law, um, the general presumption, and this is a constitutional issue, is that each of the individual states have determined what is and what isn't against the law. Actually, I should say they just determine what is against the law. They don't determine what is in conformity with the law, I guess, is a good way to put it. So it's up to each state, uh, depending on where a person lives, and they presumably live in a state, and if they're in that state, there is a law, set of laws, that says what they're prohibited from doing and and what the consequences are. And, And that's the default position for everything. And that's in the Constitution that the state, it starts with the states. The states get to make those determinations. Now, the federal government comes into play when there's some federal aspect of the case. And that can be done two different ways. One is if it's actually federal, you know, geographic jurisdiction, then it's in federal court and and the federal rules apply. And that applies to, let's say, Uh, an offense that occurs on federally owned property that is not within the jurisdiction of the state. And that includes things like national parks, courthouses, you know, government buildings, stuff like that. So, again, the default position is that most things that people will do that are alleged to be against the law are going to be in state court. And there's pretty much a law for anything that someone might do that's wrong that's covered by some statute, some law somewhere. So, again, putting aside the possibility of geographic federal jurisdiction because it's on federal land or federal property, then we have this entire category of laws that invoke what we call a Commerce Clause uh, jurisdiction because it's something of national importance and affects technically commerce between the states and this is how the federal government gets the ability to have for example national laws that relate to firearms or possession or and distribution of controlled substances or as we see in the elizabeth holmes case use of the mails or the um electronic communications that go between states that is part of a fraudulent scheme or part of some other kind of conspiracy or whatever the crime is. So, um, again, it's it's a way of saying that we're going to use our federal laws because they're invoking this, you know, national importance uh, concepts. And uh, so the third, the third way that something can end up being federal is just because uh, a federal agency 
initiated the investigation and they can uh, attach some aspect of it to usually an item, a piece of physical evidence that traveled in interstate commerce, which, by the way, is everything. So take a look at the uh, the coffee cup you're drinking out of right now. 99% chance that it traveled in interstate commerce. And I don't just mean, yeah, you may have made it on a kiln or something in your backyard and fired it yourself and... But where'd you buy the clay? Where did you buy the kiln? Where did you buy the glaze that you treated it with? And, uh, you know, the coffee that you're drinking right now, did that come from Wisconsin, grown and, you know, did it, did it utilize a, a tractor trailer to get from point A to point B? You see, everything, everything and anything can end up being in interstate commerce. So it's time for a break, and we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. Um, just this past week, we've seen a tremendous increase in the number of um, people involved with the legal system uh, getting infected with uh, presumably the Omicron variant. Well, let's just say COVID. And uh, I can tell you right now that virtually the entire um, House of Corrections in Milwaukee uh, practically every individual in that facility, including the staff and uh, detainees, as it were, uh, have an uh, active case of COVID. Um, I practice all over the state, so I can tell you that it's, it's not uh, unique to any one particular area, basically everywhere. Um, courthouse staff, district attorney's offices, judges are... Um, experiencing a new wave of COVID infections. And um, I've had several trials that are just put on hold until we kind of see what happens. But this appears to be something that is just spreading like wildfire. Earlier this week, there had been an announcement in the New York um, Superior and appellate courts as well that they were going to continue with in-person appearances and trials in spite of the fact that there was evidence of um, increased COVID activity. And I'm sure you're all familiar with the fact that the, the mayor, brand new mayor, I believe, um, had also expressed a commitment to not shutting down. Well, as of uh, Thursday, or fri Friday, I should say, yesterday, um, that changed and the entire court system in New York is now once again basically shut down for in-person appearances. Um, so we're back in that mode of how do we deal with this? And uh, I can tell you personally, dealing with um, the anticipation of being, you know, open for business as usual has been an ongoing, you know, exercise in futility. Um, I had my own views on whether we should be doing things uh, as far as there's certain crimes that probably just aren't worth uh, prosecuting if we really gonna, are going to make priorities, uh, you know, marijuana f offenses, for example, you know, um, I think we're wasting a lot of time and money on that. But anyway, uh, very serious cases are, of course, looming out there and how we deal with it because of the, you know, basic fundamental requirement that we have people um, from the community that we bring in 
to the courthouse to participate in this process lends itself to this overall weakness in the in the process that we you know depend upon people physically being in a confined space in order to do the work that's necessary for participating in the form of a jury um so yeah, I, I find it kind of um, interesting how quickly um, this is sort of uh, this new wave of infections. And, you know, hopefully the, it'll uh, die off uh, quickly as well. But, you know, there are people, the hospitals are inundated. I uh, read somewhere, I think on Friday, that practically every county in the state is out of ICU beds. And there are some counties and some hospitals that are simply turning away all non-urgent care and even turning away ambulances to find another hospital to go to because they have people, you know, um, just in every nook and cranny in that, in that space. Um, it's looking that a lot of the infections, uh, the death rate is certainly, um, not what it was, and I think that's mostly what I hear anyway, is that's attributable to people being vaccinated, and I think that probably bears itself out. But, you know, we don't have a rule in any of our courts that participants, uh, meaning, you know, defense lawyers, uh, jurors, anybody else who's involved in that process is mandated to be vaccine, you know, va vaccinated. And we haven't taken that step, and I don't think we will, but it's just kind of, it lends itself to a non-optional part of the process. And think about other things. I mean, you've got hospital care where you have to do things in a certain place. It, you can't do it anywhere else. Same thing with the, you know, trials. You can't, can't do them just any old place, and you have to, um, you know, account for the fact that people are going to be interacting. That's the nature of what they're doing. Now, I say that, but uh, there have been some counties, I know uh, Brown County was doing this, a couple of uh, other counties that I practice in regularly were, were doing a jury selection in off-site, you know, at a movie theater or at a, a local college or something like that in order to um, account for proper social distancing. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're still... We're not just dealing with you know the remnants of this pandemic. It's it's now in a phase, once again, where it's it's deeply impacting um, everybody's lives. And you know, one could say, and I couldn't necessarily disagree with this, but um, that given the crisis that we're in, one would not. Uh, expect to see as much alleged criminal activity going on but that's just not true <laughs> people are finding ways to get in trouble and trust me the cops are out there looking for people that are making trouble so you know it's not like uh we live in a there's no benefit at all <laughs> for, from this pandemic if you thought there might be one but um yeah interestingly um I told you John's getting ready for this big case that kicks off on Monday. That's in federal court. And last we heard, uh, it's happening still. And this is, there's various reasons why that is happening. And there are exceptions to um, the general consensus out there that cases are kind of on hold. But 
Um, and again, it varies from location to location. Um, different judges have different views on these things and, and what's appropriate and what's not. But um, yeah, once again, we're hit with a, another challenge for how we accomplish the lofty goal of administering justice in our society. So um, I want to transition into an interesting story that came up um, in the Jessaline Maxwell case. As you know, she was convicted of conspiring with um, Epstein to, you know, have, you know, know, basically human trafficking is what it came down to and facilitating uh, sexual assaults of various natures. And that case was because of all the publicity surrounding it. They utilized jury questionnaires, which is a process whereby a potential juror will receive a questionnaire, usually in the mail, fill it out, and then return it. And then that is designed to help the jury selection process. And in federal court, the judge runs that process, and there's not much participation in the courtroom from the lawyers, but the lawyers do participate in determining what questions will be asked. And of course, a huge issue in the Maxwell case was if any potential juror had any experience with um, sexual assault, either as a victim or having been accused of it. And, you know, it was it was replete with uh, that issue addressed both in the written juror questionnaire as well as questions that were asked of jurors. And so flash forward after the conviction is entered, it's really within, I think, about a week or week and a half Lo and behold, there was a juror who failed to disclose that that person had been the victim of a sexual assault. And not only did the person not mention it, but it became a key part of what happened in the deliberation room. And this juror ended up reporting that, uh, sharing the experience of being a victim helped sway the jury toward conviction on many of the counts. And it's unusual that we get a bit of a glimpse into what happens in the deliberation room because that entire process is very well protected. And in fact, any juror can refuse to discuss what happened in the deliberation room. But here we have an issue where it's been identified that this issue arose and going back and looking at the questionnaire that the, the juror, potential juror who got picked, filled out, didn't answer that question honestly. Hmm. So we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we'll talk about what implication that has on the integrity of the verdict and what might happen going forward. So we'll be right back. Welcome back. As promised, we're going to talk about the Jessaline Maxwell conviction and this issue that has cropped up, arisen in the context of juror misconduct, which has the potential to undo the verdict and require the process to start all over again. Now, let's take a step back, because after a verdict's received, when it's a guilty verdict, there are various things that can happen either through the appellate process or uh, an issue that can be addressed directly with the trial judge, the judge that presided over the actual case. And 
juror misconduct is one of those things that can come up that doesn't have, by the way, an automatic remedy. Uh, it has to be examined and argued as to what, what the true impact is. And when it occurs, it's generally nobody's fault except the juror. You know, just so you know, who, who bears the brunt of this problem? And in the odd event, unlikely event, that one side or the other participated in perpetuating that misconduct, there could be consequences. Let's say the prosecution, for example, again, very unlikely scenario, uh, encourages, <laughs> you know, dishonesty from, you know, in some way from a potential juror. Well, you know, that would be bad, obviously. But that's not normally what happens. What normally happens is for a number of reasons, and I'll, I'll walk through a couple of hypotheticals with you, somebody isn't honest about their background or an issue that should have been raised. Now, this is a little bit of a dicey subject because, as you know, in the Maxwell case, the subject matter of the prosecution was uh, involved sexual assault, right? So it's kind of a touchy subject and uh, not something that people, especially if someone were a victim of in the past, might not feel comfortable volunteering all that information. But what happens when somebody does have that, and I'll just give you some examples from the many trials I've handled where it's been that type of scenario. Um, you know, a juror might feel uncomfortable saying, hey, yeah, when I was five years old, I was molested by my uncle or something like that. And there, there is a procedure whereby that juror can talk about what happened in a private room outside the presence of other jurors. But in order for the, the issue to even come to light, that person has to raise their hand and say, yes, I have something that I need to disclose. And it's up to the juror to decide if they're going to say something about it. Now, it's not as simple as yes or no, necessarily, because you have to add another layer to that. And that is a juror could reasonably perceive that he or she wouldn't be impacted in any way by that prior experience and could, in an attempt to exercise logical judgment, not disclose it because it's not something that, that even occurred as a uh, potential influence. In other words, it's entirely possible that someone could very well have been the victim of a similar assault, but knows in their heart that it's not going to matter. Well, okay, it's still dishonest when the person doesn't answer the question in response to, has something like this happened to you? And technically a juror should not anticipate that it's not going to matter because the lawyers and the judge need to need to know that information albeit you know probably embarrassing not easy to talk about but the reality is that not every single person in the community is an ideal juror for a case that involves allegations of that nature so, you know, one, the scenario that's been presented here, there's one version of events that, you know, we have for our consideration here. And that is, this juror said that uh, he or she uh, skimmed through the initial questionnaire, didn't read it very carefully. And then the issue didn't come up, you know, in full frontal <laughs> um, 
confrontation, as it were, until the deliberation room. Now, that is very hard to believe, and I'll tell you why. Because if you are a potential juror, you get this packet in the mail and says, hey, you're going to be in federal court for this trial. It's going to take, you know, who knows how long. You're going to have to quit your job. No, you know, you're going to have to make other arrangements for your job. You're going to have to have child care, you know, all these things. You're going to have to travel, be sequestered. You know, it's a big deal, and I'm pretty sure you'd read the questions, right? Because you have to answer yes or no to a lot of things. So skimming over it and just checking no or yes to everything, it, that, that doesn't make sense to begin with. But secondly... That information is then used by the judge to ask questions about what's on that form and then a whole lot of other stuff, too. So in the courtroom, while jurors are revealing information that is going to be used by both sides to exercise their jury strikes, there it's practically impossible in my mind that the issue would not have come up again and nobody would have... Uh, raised anything about that, that it somehow just slipped through, slipped by, and then it didn't come up until deliberation started. That makes no sense. A more likely scenario, and again, I don't know, I'm speculating, of course, but this looks like it's someone who was likely a phantom juror. A phantom juror is parlance in the legal world for someone who doesn't answer the questions honestly with the intent of getting on the jury and the intent of either finding the person guilty or not guilty based on some kind of predisposition that they haven't disclosed. And I teach classes on uh, jury selection and it's one of the themes that I incorporate when I'm teaching this to lawyers about you know, how do you identify someone who's not being honest with you Certainly, if you have information that you know is not being uh, presented accurately, that's one thing. But sometimes it's an attitude that you can detect or a, you know, a zeal to be on the jury because, you know, they just really, really, really want to be on this jury. Well, sometimes you got to wonder. It's, it's great if someone's doing that out of pure, you know, devotion to duty and citizenship and all that stuff. But um, in this case, it, it it appears much more likely to me that this person either really wanted to be on the jury and therefore didn't uh, make public disclosures of things, or it's something where, as I said before, the individual may have felt that it really didn't matter, but it turns out that it did. So that's guesswork, and guessing is bad. Guessing is always bad in the legal system. Um, so what could happen now? Well, I, I can guarantee you the first thing that's going to happen is a request for a new trial and to do this process all over again. And that actually may be granted. But as I said before, part of that process has to include finding out what really happened. And that's there's going to be motion hearings and evidence and testimony and things like that about the transactional you know, order of events and did somebody lie? Was somebody, is there a reason why they... You know, but the point is, we got a problem. We have a problem that has to be addressed in some way. So, I can assure you that the defense will be asking for that new trial because this is something that tainted the entire process. 
and think about what a waste of time <laughs> when you got to do this all over again. Not good, right? Um, but are there consequences for that for the juror? That's a very interesting question because uh, jurors are put, you know, well, they're not under oath. Well, yeah, they are in federal court. I'm trying to think. Yes, they are. They're put under oath that they're going to answer questions truthfully. So if somebody lied, you know, under oath deliberately, um, that could be a charge, you know, a criminal charge, a federal charge, probably. But again, because this is something in the realm of probably subjective analyses for just for example, whatever quote unquote sexual assault this person had been a victim of, maybe in that person's mind, it didn't qualify the same way as what another person might consider sexual assault. You know, I mean, there's kind of this sliding scale of things that can happen that may or may not be considered that because a lot of it has to do with the intent of the perpetrator, right? Um, we all had our diapers changed when we were kids and none of that was sexual, but it, presumably because there was no perpetrator that had a, a sexual intent behind it, right? So you, know, you can see how this subjectivity variable goes into that. And I, I don't think the juror would be necessarily in any kind of criminal trouble, but we'll have to see what happens. And, uh, you know, it's the, the legal system, the criminal justice system is something that just keeps on giving us fascinating things to talk about. At least I'm fascinated. I hope you find it entertaining, too. So hopefully uh, Mr. Birdsall's trial will be done next week and he will be free to join us in our uh, wonderful journey through the world of criminal defense. In the meantime, thank you for all of your support, your positive comments that we get. Um, they do tend to be more positive than negative, so I thank you for that. But if it's negative, let me know. I want to know. So, tune in next week as you can every week, right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL, Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.